Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. We are finishing up a series that we've been um, in on this reality of generosity, on this reality of What does it look like for us to be a generous church? What does it look like for us to live generous lives? What does it look like for us to live in such a way that people who see our lives, whether it's the way that we serve the community at an Oak Ridge High School game, whether it is... um, whether it's the way we give of our time, talent, and treasure, the way that we choose to live our lives leads to this question, this simple question, why? Why would you do that? Dimitri, why would you go back to Ukraine? You were just arrested there. Why would you go back into harm's way? Why would you do that? Why would you choose to live in that way? Friends, we want to live. We want to lead a life that leads to the question, why? And when people ask us why, we want to be able to say to them, because Jesus. Because there's one who overcame death. There's one who overcame the biggest problem that we have. He conquered the grave and through faith in him, through faith in the fact that he sacrificed his life for you and for me, we can now live forever with him. We are fully forgiven. We are redeemed, saved, and brought from death to life. That's why we're not living for now. This is just a, a, a cosmic blip on the radar of eternity. We're living for the life to come. Friends, that's why the writer of Hebrews said, this world is not your home. This world is not our home. We want to live in light of eternity, even if that means, and usually when it means, gosh, there are some sacrifices that we make now in order to make the name of Jesus famous, in order to make the message of the gospel famous to the ends of the earth. And that's why Jesus said, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. That's how people understand the cross. That's how people see the cross in our lives. Friends, I was thinking about this idea of generosity, and we titled this series, Everyone. And the reason we titled it, Everyone, is simply this. You see, generosity, it's about empowering the church to reach the next one, the next person, the next life. Generosity is about people through the joyful generosity of everyone. So this sermon is for you. It's not for the person sitting next to you. It's not for your friend. It's not for anybody else. It's for you. And the question is this. Do you value the work of the church? Because at the end of the day, what we give towards is what we value. It's what matters to us. And I love what Chad said last week as he was diving into this topic. He said, look, my prayer is that there is zero guilt in this room. I mean, God declares it in the book of 2 Corinthians. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, not those who give out of compulsion, but that give because they've received the grace of God and it's overflowing in generosity and they want to give. 
That's why we choose to give of our time, our talent, and our money to the cause of the gospel. But there's been an, an alarming trend over the last 25 years. If you read any survey, survey, any Barna Group survey, any Pew Research survey, in general, since 1990, 1985, giving towards churches has decreased by 25%. Part of that is the reality that we live in a culture that's becoming more and more post-Christian. Part of that is because, man, we would love to give to more humanitarian causes that provide very practical needs, and, and we're not as connected to the main and central purpose of the church. Friends, do you know what the church is here for? Look, we're... We're going to go out and flood the 50 corridor with compassion this week. We're going to serve. We're going to show people in tangible ways that God is for them, that he loves them. But the main reason we exist is for us to declare as a people the good news of the gospel. See, you can give someone a shirt for their back, but if they don't know Jesus, it doesn't help them for eternity. You can give them food for their stomach, but if they don't have the life of Christ in their soul, ultimately that's not helpful. What helps people and the reason the church exists is to tell people that there was a man who was fully God, fully man named Jesus. And guess what? He conquered death. And there's a way for you to be alive with him forever. That's why we're here. And so when you give to support the local church, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, friends, you're supporting the work of the gospel in this community. The light of Hills Church shines brighter when people give more generously to the work that we're doing here. Friends, wherever you find yourself at church, whether it's here or somewhere else, be a contributor financially to the cause of the gospel in the local church. It will connect your heart to it in amazing ways. You know, I thought about this. It hit me um, on Friday night because <laughs> I was helping out with the guys and we were at the Snack Shack at the Oak Ridge game. We were, we were manning the grill station. So we had burgers and hot dogs. And come on, somebody, we had tri-tips rolling. They, hey, we made a mean tri-tip sandwich on Friday night. We're very proud of that. And I'll never forget five years ago when my wife and I moved out here from Atlanta, uh, there was this crazy phenomenon, right? I... You know, we, we had so many people from the, ch the church help us move in. They signed us up for a meal train. And almost every single night of that first week, somebody brought us tri-tip. And I had never heard of tri-tip before. I'm not kidding you when I say, I'm not exaggerating when I say, for whatever reason, tri-tip does not exist like east of the Mississippi. I don't know why. It's not back east. We have flat iron steaks, sirloin, flank steaks, different cuts of meat, but we don't have tri-tips. So I got out here and everyone's like, man, I cooked you my favorite tri-tip. Like this is how I cook tri-tip. And no joke, five, six nights in a row, we had, we had tri-tip coming out our ears. And I, I got to experience all the different ways that people 
Cook tri-tip. Now, you know, because I'm a man and because I realized, gosh, in order for me to fully become a Californian, I got to figure out how to cook a tri-tip. And uh, it's, it's a tricky piece of meat. Am I right? It's a tricky piece of meat. And so I called some of the guys who had prepared tri-tips for us. And I said, okay, what's your secret? Because all of them were delicious. And the first guy I called, he said, all right, here's the deal, man. Um, you know, put it in this rub, you know, spray some apple cider vinegar and some, all the different things on it. Soak it for an entire night, then let it dry and then throw it on the smoker low and slow for, I don't know how many hours. And I said, that sounds amazing. The only problem is I, at that point, I did not have a smoker. So I was like, can't do that. Okay, next guy, call him up. Okay, here's what you need to do. You need to uh, put this rub on it or this marinade on it. Then you need to reverse sear it on the grill. Four minutes per side, high heat, then cut off the direct heat and let it sit for 30 minutes. It's like, whoa, okay, I'll try, I'll try that. I burned the mess out of it, completely ruined it, Okay. So I called the next guy. I, I tried, I don't know, everybody has a different way of cooking tri-tip, I feel like. And it took me a while to get to the point where I actually knew what I was doing. Now I pretty much nail it every time. But there comes a point in life when it's no longer acceptable to screw up the tri-tip. Am I right? You get a few like, you know, you get a few mulligans the first few times through. It's a new piece of meat. I'm learning it. You know, you're figuring out how to make this thing just right. And... Um, what happened on Friday night happened to me about four years ago because I had failed on one too many tri-tips. And I looked at my friend Dan, we were manning the tri-tip grill, which had about eight of them going at once. And my thought was, man, okay, I've messed up a lot of tri-tip in my day, but you know, it's for my family, right? If I undercook it and we get sick, I mean, it's not great, not helpful, not fun, but it's just us. If we undercook this, at the Oak Ridge homecoming game and a whole bunch of them get sick, not only do they get sick, but now I have ruined the witness of our church. They know who's, who's manning the snack shack, right? And if you can't cook a good tri-tip, they're like, Psh, I'm never going there. Jesus must not be there. They don't even know how to cook tri-tips over there. And so I looked at Dan. I said, Dan, there's a lot of pressure on us. These tri-tip sandwiches are legendary at Oak Ridge. What do we, you know, we got to make sure we get this right. And Dan, you know, we're over the grill. He kind of looked over at me and he smiled. And I, I literally, um, I hope you guys can see this. I think we got someone coming out who's going to give you a good, a good view of these tri-tip right here. Just two lovely looking tri-tip. And uh, they look good, don't they, man? Yeah, these are great. Okay, so, you know, from the outside, these, these tri-tip look pretty similar. And I remember asking Dan, I was like, Dan, you know, we really can't mess these up. And he, you know, he, he had a little secret that I had already figured out many years before. And he, he pulled out from his back pocket. He goes, hey, man, we're not going to mess any of these up. Friends, this right here is, I don't know what exactly. I actually picked this up from Dan's, shout out to Dan, his uh, house last night at about 9.30 when this idea hit me. I don't know why these ideas hit me late on Saturday night. It just happens. Um, <laughs> and so I literally said, dude, I need, I need your thermometer because mine is legitimately broken. And so I, I ran by his house, I picked it up and he goes, here's how we're gonna know that every tri-tip is cooked to perfection because we're gonna stick this bad boy right in there and we're going to get a reading. And at exactly this temperature, we're going to pull it off and let them rest. And man, 
we're going to bring some people to Jesus by how good these tri-tip sandwiches are on this night. And I said, amen, let's love the 50 this week. Um, thank you, my friend, for being out here and helping with this. But here, here's the deal with tri-tips, and here's the deal with generosity. Here's how this connects, and I believe this is so true. At the end of the day, generosity is the thermometer that reads the temperature of our faith and our love. Generosity is a thermometer. If you're wondering, Lord, it, is my, where's my faith at? Do I have genuine love for others? And do I have genuine love and concern and care for the work that you're doing in the world? He says, all right, let's just sort of stick the generosity thermometer into your heart and let's get a reading. Let's see where it's at. Because from the outside, these two tri-tips look very similar. From the outside, only God knows your heart. And I'll tell you right now, when you're first learning how to cook a tri-tip and you don't have a thermometer, it's like, man, I, it's really hard for me to know what's on the inside. And what we're going to look at in today's scriptures, we're going to dive back into this one passage that we've been looking at a lot because it's just such a key text on this idea of generosity. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, what he is saying to us in this passage is simply this. He's saying, if you want to know the genuineness of your love, of your faith, he's saying, you have to look at where your money is going. Jesus himself said it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of worship. And Paul, this is a, this is a, a crazy passage when you step back and look at the context. You see, Paul has just come from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, in Acts 15, you can read about something called the Jerusalem Council, where there were a lot of new Christians who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, was God in the flesh, sent to save the world, Jewish Christians who believed he was the Messiah, and yet they did not know what to do with these Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that is Romans and Greeks and Africans and Persians and all these others around. They didn't know what to do with these people who were coming to faith in Jesus. And so many of the Jewish leaders of the church in Acts 15, they said, whoa, hold on a second here. No, you can't like be a part of this thing. You have to become Jewish first in order to get saved. You have to follow Torah. You have to eat kosher. You have to observe Sabbath. They, they were saying you cannot actually believe Jesus is the Savior unless you first become Jewish. And then Paul is saying, no, 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 no. And Peter stands up and says, no, that's not right. God gave me a vision. I went to Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 9. He was a, a Roman soldier, and I went there, and I prayed with them, and God poured the Holy Spirit out on them, and we baptized their family, and they believe Jesus is the Savior. Peter and Paul are saying, guys, God just blew the door open on this thing. It's now to the ends of the earth with the gospel. This is for all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. It started with us. We were the ones that God gave the promise to, the Jewish people, but now he sent the Savior through us, and it's our job to go to the ends of the earth. 
all the way to places like Melitopol, Ukraine, and El Dorado Hills, California. We got to share the good news with everyone. And, and here's where it gets crazy. There were many, many Jewish people in that time that said, we still don't like this. In fact, we don't believe it's legitimate. We don't believe they're actual followers of Jesus unless they first convert to Judaism. And so Paul goes on a mission. This is a thread that runs through every letter that Paul writes, every church he plants. When he leaves Jerusalem, this is amazing. This blew my mind when I read this this week. When he leaves Jerusalem, he goes to all these churches and he says, look, the church in Jerusalem is facing a hard time right now. A lot of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders in the temple, they're, they're persecuting the church in Jerusalem. They're persecuting the Jewish believers because they think the Jewish believers have turned their back on Judaism. They think they're following a false Messiah. They don't believe Jesus is a real thing. So he said, and the other complication, uh, church in Ephesians, church in Galatia, church in Thessalonica, church in Corinth. The other problem is a little problem here. They don't actually think you're real Christians yet either because you, you know, you haven't, I've told you, you don't have to. Paul is saying to the churches, but he's saying, because you haven't observed Torah, they don't think you're actually in. So here's what we're gonna do. Paul's like, I've got a plan. We're gonna blow their mind with generosity. Paul says, I'm gonna go to all the churches that I've planted and I'm gonna take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. The guys that like kicked you out, they don't like you. They think you're wrong. They think you're doing it all wrong. The ones who are excluding you, I'm going to raise money from you guys and I'm gonna bring it back to the home church where it all started in Jerusalem and I'm gonna show them through this gift of generosity, your faith is real. Isn't that amazing? Let me show it to you, okay? So here's, here's where Paul kicks it off. 2 Corinthians verse 1 to 11. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's already been there a year before, and he says, guys, I'm doing this whole tour to all the churches. I'm raising money for the saints, for the believers in Jerusalem. We'll see that in a minute. When I come back through, he said, for a whole year, I want you to set aside money for the collection for the church in Jerusalem. Second Corinthians is a fundraising letter, friends, Okay. And Paul says this, before he goes to Corinth, he goes, hey, uh, Corinthians, you guys, you're the rich church in town. You, you guys, you all are meeting in the hall of Tyrannus. You've got a great building. You've got lots of funding. But he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, about, and here's the key word, the grace of of God that has been given through the churches in Macedonia. He goes, I'm coming to your church in Corinth, but before I get there, I got to tell you about the Macedonians. He's like, you won't believe what just happened when I was in Macedonia. And he, he calls it, he says, I want to tell you about the grace of God that was given through the churches in Macedonia. Hang on to that idea of grace. He goes on. He says, they're being tested by many troubles right now. So right now, they're being tested by many troubles. They're very poor. But they're also, 
They're at a hard time, a hard spot. They're very poor, but also filled with abundant joy. Okay, this is an interesting equation, Paul. They're afflicted by trouble. They're poor, and that word very poor, if you look into the Greek origin of that word, it means deep, deep poverty, like the, the very word that we use, the English word for submarine, like the thing that goes to the very bottom of the ocean. So he says, they're not just poor, they're deeply poor, deeply impoverished, dirt poor. So they're under trials and testing. They're very poor, yet they have abundant what? Joy, which has overflowed, which has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What an unbelievable play on words. I mean, what do we think about when we think about wealth? We think about buying low, selling high. We think about good investments. We think about working hard and getting a promotion. Wealth is what we earn, what we get, what we work for, right? And Paul says their poverty and the trials that they're facing actually combined with the joy of their salvation because they realize everything I have is a gift. And now Paul's coming through asking us to support the church that doesn't like us who kicked us out basically and said our faith wasn't real, but we are so blown away by the grace of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. Our abundant joy is so much, we're in. It overflows in a wealth of generosity. They're like, we're in, sign me up, Paul. And this one, I was like, I'll move on. I want to get to the next verse. I, I almost, there was a moment here. I'm going to be honest with you, okay? As a pastor, I had a moment this week I was like, is this really the inherent word of God? I think Paul might be exaggerating right here. I don't know if this is true. Here's why. Here's what he says. He says, I gave you all my cheat sheet from last, uh, from last service. I can't delete it either. Okay, here we go. I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. Now, here's where I was like, nah, that didn't happen. They begged. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. We want to be a part of this, Paul. Paul, please let us give more. We want to give more to those guys that kicked us out. We want to show them how much we love them, that what Jesus did for us is real, it's true. And I was like, I cannot imagine. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine, even myself. I was like, I can't imagine showing up to church and having the entire congregation run up to me and say, seriously, man, how can we give more money to the church? It's okay, you can laugh. I literally had a moment where I laughed. I was like, that's crazy. That's like reverse 
That's like reverse of how it works, right? I'm up here saying, trust me, it will go better for you. This is God's will. The first 10% is his. If you live this way, there will be not just blessing on your life, but peace in your soul when you align with God. And I'm, I'm trying to teach the word around this idea of generosity faithfully. And Paul is saying he shows up and they're begging me to give beyond what they're able to support the saints in Jerusalem to give to the work of the church, I thought, man, we got, we got a long way to go. I got a long way to go. I was like, Lord, I want you to sh shift in my soul this week how I view generosity. I mean, full transparency. This past week, I, I literally, Lindsay and I were sitting down and we were thinking through, man, we would, we'd love to you know, take a trip this summer as a family. And we're looking at it, we're like, man, I, I don't think we can do it. And man, God has provided for us so graciously. We in no way hear anything other than that when I say this, but it was this moment where we literally looked at our tithe and our offerings. We're like, you know, if we just didn't give for, you know, two months, we could do it. Who would know? Man, we could do a lot with that. And, and we felt it, and it was affecting our lifestyle. It was like, no, that's not ours to begin with. And the thought hit me. I was like, oh, it's supposed to be like that. Because in a place like America where we have everything we need, if we don't voluntarily give the first of it to God, then literally we will forget that we are actually dependent on God for everything. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, the Macedonians, this is amazing. He says, they did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and then to us. That's incredible. They did more than we had hoped. Their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and then to us. You see how that works? When you see the gospel, like the Macedonians did, like Dimitri and the pastors in Ukraine have seen the grace of God, they, they give themselves to the Lord. They say, we surrender, Lord. It's all yours You've given us your whole life. You've given us everything. All we have is yours. Paul goes, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then they gave themselves to us. Now, does that mean that the Macedonians went with Paul back to Jerusalem? No, doesn't mean that. When Paul says they gave themselves to us, what he's saying there, what he's inferring is they gave their finances, which represents their bios, their life, their means of living, the way that they provide for their family and their food and their shelter and all these things. They gave themselves to us by supporting the work of the church with their money. That's what he's saying. And he says, just as God wanted them to do, and we sent Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Giving is a ministry. Some of you make crazy amounts of money. 
Not even joking. Like some of you make crazy money. All of us in this room are rich by world standards, beyond wealthy, I promise you. Go to Africa, go to Mexico, go to Haiti, spend some time in the third world. We have fresh water, we have electricity, we have air conditioning, we have cushioned chairs, we have all these things. And literally, God is saying your ministry, your calling is to give. And not from guilt or compulsion. No one's going to force anything. He says, I want it to be like the Macedonians in an abundance of joy. They gave because they get to be a part of the church in Jerusalem. We give because we want to be a part of what God is doing in Ukraine. And friends, the reason you give to support the work of Hills Church is because you want to be a part of the gospel work in El Dorado Hills. That's what this is. And Paul encourages them. Next verse, he says, look, you excel in so many ways, church in Corinth. You're great in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us. I want you to excel also in this grace of giving. This grace of giving. Oh, this, this legitimately wrecked me. He said, I'm not commanding you to do this. Friends, do not hear me today up here. Like Chad said last week, don't give under compulsion. Don't give begrudgingly. God will provide for this church. He does not need your money, right? God will sustain this church through every season because it's his church, right? There is no commanding you to do this. That's what Paul says. He goes, but like the Macedonians, I am testing the authenticity of your love. Oh, Paul, stop saying things like that. I, I mean, conviction deep in my soul. I am testing the authenticity of your love by the eagerness of your generosity. Hello. I mean, this is it, right? Okay. Church in Corinth. Here we go. I am, I am testing the temperature, the genuineness of your love, okay? It all looks the same from the outside. Finances are a private deal. It's between you and God. I'm not making a command right now at all, but I wanna, I wanna see if your love is real by how you give your money. Friends, look, we can give without loving. <laughs> I mentioned it a few weeks ago. There's a lot of times I've had to pay like taxes or tickets. I didn't love that. In fact, I resented that. <laughs> we can give without loving, but what Paul is saying is if you say the work of the gospel matters, if you say, man, I love this church, I love the church in Jerusalem, I love people, but you don't give? Paul's saying uh, the temperature is reading something different than what you say it's reading. It's a different temperature than what you say. Like it's not finished yet. In fact, it might make someone sick. Like make sure you don't serve that, right? And so he's saying, look, I'm testing the authenticity of your love by the eagerness of your generosity. I'm not commanding you to do this. 
And then he, he brings it home. This is why he says, this is why giving is a grace, the grace of giving. He connects grace and giving. He says this, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, does the way that you give toward the work of God and the work of the gospel in the earth, does it in any way resemble this? When people see, when, when people hear of the generosity of the Macedonians, they're going to be like, what? What is going on with them? That doesn't make any sense. They're impoverished and they gave beyond their means. And it represents the gospel. Grace, grace doesn't make sense. That's the point of grace. It's the whole idea behind grace right? Grace is something you didn't earn. You don't deserve. You can't climb your way into heaven. It's a gift. It's a free gift from God who became a man who died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be spiritually raised from death to life. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Friends, there is a connection between generosity and love and if we want to get really down into it, this reality that Paul is talking about here, there's so many stats that I came across this week. Giving trends in America, I know this is small, decreased 24, 25% since 1990. Americans give an average of 2.5% of their income to churches People that make, this is all Barna, Pew Research, 75,000 or more. Of people that make that much, less than 1% tithe. The tithe means the first 10% to God, less than 1%. 150,000, less than 0.3% tithe. And so when Jesus, I thought about this, and again, Paul would say it, I'm going to say it. The goal is not guilt. The goal, like, if you feel guilt today, if you feel compulsion, don't give. But Paul is saying, I want to connect this to the gospel in your heart. It's like a gospel thermometer. And the reality is this. If you read Revelation 3, 14 to 20, and I'll close with this. The keys can come out. Jesus is writing a letter to the church in Laodicea. And he says some, some hard things to them. He goes, look, you're neither hot nor cold in this whole reality of your love. And, and he says this, he connects it. He goes, you say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. I'm rich and I'm in need of nothing, church in Laodicea. And you don't realize that you are, in fact, needy, wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked spiritually. I advise you, buy gold from me. I've got true riches for you. I have grace and mercy. I have something that will last for eternity. And friends, if you look at the temperature of your love and you actually check it to the reality, the statistics tell us, man, okay, 
a tiny fraction of Christians are actually generous towards the work of the church. Statistically speaking, most American Christians are somewhere in this zone. They're not even lukewarm. This is about where the American church is at. Giving somewhere between 1.7 and 4% of everything God has given us back to the work of the gospel. But the more we give, the closer we get to this reality of tithing, the closer we get to the Macedonians who gave above and beyond what they were able to give in the midst of this reality. Friends, here's what it does for us. Here's what it does for us. And this is why it's called the grace of giving. You see, what, what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he goes, those who love money, those who are seeking to build their kingdom and live for this world alone, he says, many of them have walked away from the faith. And I'll never forget when I was a, a, a young boy, nine or 10 years old, my father was an Episcopal priest. And there were two bishops from Northern Africa that came to speak at our church. I'll never forget this. And they, they spoke, they stayed at our house for about a week. And at the end of the week, they looked at my dad and they said, I don't know how you're a Christian here. I don't know how you do it. I remember sitting there and, and, and thinking, what? My dad looked at them and said, what do you mean? You, you face threat from radical Islam every day. You face extreme poverty. You face starvation. We've got it easy over here. You guys have got it hard. He goes, no. He goes, I've been here for a week, two weeks. He goes, my, my faith is dead. He goes, you all don't need God for anything over here. You got everything you need. And the reason giving is a grace, the reason sacrificial giving is a grace is because it reminds you that you actually never graduate from grace. You never graduate from your need for God. And it's not until the amount that you give actually affects your real life decisions that you're reminded of, oh, none of this is mine anyways. That kind of hurt. Kind of felt like picking up a cross and following Jesus kind of felt like being a disciple and following him and honoring him and loving him first with my finances. Friends, when Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea, he said, warning, you say in your mind, you are rich and in need of nothing, but the truth is you need me so much. And the only way you will get and stay in touch with your need is through giving away the one thing that gives you the ability to buy and to have all the things that you have. And as soon as you restrict that ability through generosity and say, I'm not gonna give myself access to all I want and I'm gonna feel it by supporting the work of the gospel that gets you in touch with your need for grace. I hope that makes sense. That's what Paul is trying to say. That's why he says giving is a grace because it reminds you of your need for grace. And we live in a dangerous place when it comes to being reminded of our need for God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.